The last couple of weeks have been full of dramatic gestures all over the world. You didn't have to look hard or far to find some of them. Um, just about 10 days ago, we saw a disgruntled mailman from Florida who uh, decided to take upon himself to fly his little personal helicopter and land it on the Capitol lawn so that he could deliver, hand-deliver 535 letters to each of the members of Congress protesting the way that campaigns are financed. Pretty dramatic gesture. And then uh, there was a dramatic capsizing of the boats in the Mediterranean that we all heard about and watched in horror as people died there. And it was a dramatic gesture in that it raised this issue of, these, of the number of people, the refugees and migrants that are fleeing northern Africa right now. And the, it's a crisis, and the EU has to find a way to respond uh, to what's going on there as people seek refuge there in their midst. Closer to home, uh, right here in Baltimore, we saw protests this week because people are calling for justice and trying at least a full inquiry or full investigation, trying to understand the death of Freddie Gray. And so pretty dramatic gestures calling for that this week. And then on a, on a lighter note, and maybe a cheerier note also, the dramatic gesture uh, that I heard about a couple of weeks ago, and it's a, a story of high school love. And so it's the story of, of Noah Matthews, a uh, high school senior, who had his friend get, uh, take his girlfriend, Julianne White, up in the plane so she could fly over the farm field where he had plowed into the field in 450-foot letters. One four-letter word. Do you know what it was? Prom. That's right. You, you saw that story, too. And, and that's all he had to say was prom. And yes, they ended up going to the prom together uh, in, down in South Carolina, West Florence High School. So a dramatic gesture. Today's gospel lesson is full of a dramatic gesture, too. It's, a, it's an amazing catch of fish. It's 153 of them that almost break the nets. And it's a dramatic gesture that makes it clear to the disciples this is no ordinary man on the beach there, but this is the risen Lord. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, do what you must to catch our attention again. To allow your speaking into our midst. Opening us up to the possibility of a reclaiming and a resending and even redemption. All in the name of Christ. Amen. Alice McKenzie is a professor who teaches at Southern Methodist University School of Theology, which is the Perkins School of Theology. And she tells a story about uh, working with a Sunday school class at her church. And on Palm Sunday, asking the question, going through the, all of the mysterious resurrection accounts that there are. Because all of the, the, the different Gospels deal with resurrection differently. They're, it's very, uh, and this thread of mystery runs through them all. But they're all different in the way that they, they deal with the resurrection. That's why we're doing this series of resurrection reunions after Easter, looking at all of these different encounters. And so they talk about in Mark's Gospel, there is this end of the Gospel where the women uh, are told that, that the risen Christ is, is there, and then they run away scared to death. They're not sure what to do with that news. They're, they're terrified. That's the way the, the original text of Mark ends. 
And then you've got Matthew's account where the women uh, fall at the feet of Jesus and they worship him and they worship the risen Christ. And then in Luke's gospel, you have uh, the women going back to tell the other disciples about it. And in John's gospel, the last two, uh, two texts, if you would, uh, you have the story about that we heard a couple weeks ago of the appearance to Mary Magdalene. And then she runs and tells Peter and John and then they run back to the tomb. And they see for themselves the tomb is empty. And then they go back home. And she asks the question, why do you think they go back home after that? You know, this is pretty dramatic stuff. And it just that's their response. They just go back home. And one of the guys, seeking to be sort of a smart aleck, but also maybe onto something, says, why do you think Peter went home? I think he went there to hide from Jesus. Because he was afraid. He didn't want to see. She said, you know, there was more truth to that answer than you think. Because we recall the last time we saw Peter in the, in the crucifixion scene, don't we? Where's Peter? Peter's hanging out on another charcoal fire, warming himself by that fire. And three different times he's asked, didn't you know this man? Weren't you one of his followers? Didn't you hang out with Jesus? And every time, in spite of his best intentions. He denies him. There are a lot of people who think that chapter 21 is sort of an epilogue to John's gospel. Sort of an, uh, an addition, if you will. And I want to read the end of chapter 20 that we had as our text last Sunday when we looked at the story of Thomas. There's this, in verse 30, it, in verse 31, it goes like this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Period. Exclamation point. End of story. Right? Doesn't that sound like an ending to the, to the gospel? And a lot of biblical scholars think that it probably was the original ending. But very early on, this other chapter gets attached. Another resurrection account. It's, it's in the earliest text that we have of John's gospel. But within the text itself, it would seem like that was maybe the first ending. And uh, perhaps Peter would have liked it if it had just ended there. Because up until that point, Peter's encounters with Jesus have been in groups, the safety of groups, right? He's with the others. Uh, he, he has this experience at the tomb himself, and then he has this experience where Jesus comes and appears to them in the upper room, and then he's with them with Thomas too, but he's sort of in the periphery. He doesn't have this direct encounter with Jesus. And so when we see, G when we see Peter today in the story, here's his response. Sort of like, I'm going home, I'm going fishing. Right? Peter goes back to the thing that he knew. And a lot of us, let's be honest, a lot of us in the middle of crisis or trauma, when we're, we're in the middle of something that's overwhelming and we don't know what to make of it, we, we turn to the familiar. We turn to something that would be sort of normal, right? And so Peter says, I'm going fishing, and anyone want to come with me? And the disciples say, sure, nothing better to do, right? They don't know what to do. And so they go fishing, and they have a long night of fishing, or sitting in the boat, as it's called. Now, how many of you are fisher folks out there, and how many of you have ever had a day or a night like that where you sit for a long time and you don't get anything? Anybody out there ever have a... You're lying. You're lying. 
<clears throat> now, Holly is not much of a fisherwoman, but she will be the first one to tell you that. But she now works in the maritime industry, so she had a client this week that took her and several other uh, members of the staff of Prop Talk and, and Spin Sheet out, because they're doing a feature story on this guy that's got a charter fishing thing. And so on Thursday, now if you recall, Thursday was pretty chilly. She went bundled up at 6 a.m. out of deal, and, uh, and she was on a boat for eight hours. They had 24 lines that were set out, 24 lines, and they caught nothing until the very end when they caught one rockfish, which was too big but not big enough to keep. It's in that middle group. If those of you who know the, the, the standards, it's, it's right, right in this phase where they're, they're, there's a very small population of those size fish, so you've got to get rid of them. They couldn't even keep it. So it was just a long day of waiting and mostly huddling in the cabin, as she described it. It was not, it was not much fun. Now, we don't have any indication it was that cold for the, for the disciples, but it was that unfruitful for them. They'd been fishing all night when a stranger appears to them on the shore and says, try to throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Throw it to the other side. And I imagine them at that point saying, you know, who is this guy trying to tell us how to fish? But what do they have to lose at that point? So they throw the nets on the other side, and suddenly there is this dramatic influx of fish after fish after fish, so much so that the nets are about ready to break. Oh, my goodness. Cast your nets on the other side of the boat, Jesus says. And at that moment, after the, the dramatic fish start flowing into the nets, it's John, the beloved disciple, who recognized, always the first to recognize in this gospel, right? He's the one who comes into the tomb and, and sees and believes, right? This is John who recognizes Jesus in the moment. He says, oh my gosh, I think that's Jesus over there. But it's Peter who does the impetuous thing, right? Peter who does the impulsive thing. Peter who throws on his clothes and jumps in the water. Now, we, th we think of that sort of backwards, don't we? But if you were fishing, you didn't want to be encumbered by your garments. And so you sort of stripped down almost naked to do the fishing so you wouldn't get caught up in anything. So in order to be able to meet Jesus on the shore, he has to put his clothes on and then swim through the water. They're about 100 yards out, and he's going to come in and see Jesus. But interestingly enough, interesting, we don't get the encounter yet, do we? I don't know if he, like, chickens out or what. But the next thing we know, it's the, the rest of the disciples are there. It's, again, a group, safe encounter. And uh, they're all having a fish fry on the beach. I love this part of the story, really. Because Jesus has already prepared for them breakfast. He's already got the grill going. He's got the fish going. He's got bread there. And he says to them, give me some of those fish to add to this feast. And I think that Jesus is always saying that. Jesus always offers us this free gift, this free grace, but always invites us to participate too. And says, what do you have to add to the feast? What are the gifts inside of you? I'm not going to just do it for you. I'm going to offer you love and grace, no strings attached, but that's going to call forth a response. What do you have to bring to the feast? I love that part of the story. Now it gets personal, doesn't it? After this part of the story, it gets really personal because this is when Peter finally has his encounter with Jesus. There's no safety of the group anymore. I could sort of picture this going off by the side and finally having to have that hard conversation. And the question comes first 
Simon, son of John, or Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And feed my lambs. Tend my lambs first, and then feed my lambs, then feed my sheep. Three times this gets answered over. You know I love you. Now, it's an interesting thing that's happening in the Greek here. Uh, I, I came across a very interesting interpretation of this text. In the, in the first two instances, Jesus uses the word agape, or agapeo, which is the verb for this unconditional kind of love. We just have this word love, and it's just the same love. So he uses this word for unconditional love. Peter, do you unconditionally love me? And one scholar suggested that he's giving Peter a chance to overcommit again. Because remember, this is the Peter who says, never, never, never will I deny you. And Peter each time answers, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. I love you as a friend. I'm your friend, Jesus. And the third time, Jesus asks the question this way, Peter, are you my friend? Do you love me like a friend? And finally, exasperated, he says, I've told you two other times, yes, I love you. I love you as your friend. I'm your friend. Now, maybe Jesus is giving Peter a chance to redeem himself. Because you recall, three times he'd been denied, and now three times he's given the chance to say, he will be a friend to Christ again. He will renew this relationship. He will reconnect. He will be welcomed back into this community of the kingdom of God. And I love the possibility that maybe Jesus... And this last time of answering is saying to Peter and to us, it's enough if you're simply willing to be my friend. It's enough. It's enough. But that friendship means something. A a friend of mine who's now uh, uh, teaches at West Virginia Wesleyan College, Deborah Dean Murphy. I knew her as Debbie Murphy when I was in seminary. Her husband was in seminary with me. Uh, Baptist who was studying to be a pastor down in North Carolina, served for a lot of years. Well, she started taking courses too, and then she liked it so much, she started taking more courses, stayed for her PhD, and, and now is a professor. And she talked about this, uh, this kind of love and what this encounter with Jesus is like. I want to share with you some of her words. Because sometimes we soften it a bit, this, all this language about tending and feeding sheep. He says, maybe it's because Jesus uses the overly familiar sheep metaphor. We tend to make his love a dreamy, sentimental feeling. This is the lambs and rainbows version of biblical faith, in which love is fluffy and warm, like we suppose sheepskin to be. On this view, to love another, as Jesus commands to feed and attend to sheep, is to feel a vague beneficence to a generalized other. No cost, no risk. If we conceive of this love in any way as acting or doing, it's usually as a kind of eager and pious helpfulness. Be nice to others probably sums it up. Be nice to others probably sums it up. But the embodied love that Jesus is speaking of in this breakfast on the beach scene is the love is doing that got him killed. And the news isn't good for Peter either. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. In other words, Peter, here's the fine print. 
here's what you need to know you're signing on for again. If you want to be my disciple, my friend, it will cost you. I don't want you just to mouth these words. I want you to mean these words. Katie Roberts from our congregation sent me a little quote this week that I want to share with you. She said, we'll never change the world by going to church. Now, preachers should never tell you that, I know. But we'll never change the world by going to church. We will only change the world by being the church. Which I take to mean, in light of this text, in light of my study this week, that Jesus doesn't want us just showing up on a Sunday and singing our praises and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, Jesus. Unless we're willing to go out on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Friday and a Saturday and the next Sunday and the next week and the next month to show that love, to live that love. You know, when our spouse asks us, do you love me? They don't want to just hear those words mouth back. They want to see that love, right? They want to see it in daily acts of compassion and kindness and care. And our kids, the same thing. And our friends, the same thing. When we say those words, it's only going to matter if we live those words. And the same is true for church. We can have the most amazing worship here. We can have wonderful anthems by the choir. Jill can read the scripture with great passion and we can play the game that we love Jesus here. Or at least we can say that we love Jesus. But unless we're really willing to go out and put that love into action, it doesn't matter a whole lot apparently. The end of the story these two words appear. Follow me. After everything else is said, after Peter has a chance to be redeemed, this is the simple command. Now it's interesting because this story in very close form appears in Luke's Gospel 2 in chapter 5. It's not a resurrection appearance. The story of the amazing catch of fish, that happens at the front end of the call of disciples. So it's a commissioning story. And John, who for very theological reasons ties his gospel together in the ways that he does, has this story here, very similar sounding at the end, but it's a recommissioning story, right? In the first case, it's a call to follow Jesus, and in, in this case, it is a recall to follow Jesus as well. This is a recommissioning. And it comes with great cost, but it comes with good news, too. And here's the good news. That if even Peter, who had failed Jesus so miserably, so publicly, such a flawed individual, can be recalled and reclaimed by Jesus, then friends, there's hope for all of us. Even though we overpromise and overcommit what we're going to do for God, this Jesus doesn't give up on us and wants us desperately to be back in the fold, and wants us desperately not only to be back, but to have something to offer. A few fish, or tending of sheep, or feeding of lambs, or caring for the world. And so friends, that is the good news today in this story. Like Peter, we are redeemed, no matter how many times we've let Jesus down. There is the reminder, there is the invitation, follow me. I hope you will. I'm trying the best I can.
Amen.